In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of the notes, which they're kind of blank today, you can take your own notes there, but they're on the back table if you'd like to grab one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Before we read it, I wanted to introduce you, some of you, some may know this word, but introduce some of you to a new word that maybe you're not familiar with. Uh, and the word is hermeneutics. Anybody ever heard the word hermeneutics before? Some, some have heard that, of course, but uh, it's really a fancy way to say Bible interpretation, or it's a study of how we, how we read and understand uh, the Scripture. And so uh, a few crucial things about us as we try to study the Bible is that we want to be, as we interpret the Bible, we want to do it historically, grammatically, and contextually. Three key things there, and so we want to understand the as best we can, the history of it, as best we can, the, the grammar of the, the writing we have, and always, always want to look at it in context. That's why, for example, as we go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, you're going to hear me reference back to chapter 1, you're going to hear me reference earlier in chapter 2, you're going to hear me reference Acts chapter 17, which is where we see exactly what happened as Paul and his, his ministry partners went to Thessalonica. So we want to remember these things as we approach the scripture, that context is key. We believe God inspired the word. We believe he inspired certain people to write the word. And we believe God has preserved the word just as we need it today. In that book, most of you have there in front of you in the Holy Bible. So let's do that. Let's try to see as best we can what God's word says and what he wants us to know here and then what he wants us to do as a result of what we, we know. Find chapter 2, verse 13. I'll begin reading there. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For you, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For you also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they please not God and are contrary to all men. Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins alway, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. I want to break this text down into three parts. 
remembering from chapter 1 that Paul is writing this church saying, I'm thankful that God has chosen you, that God has saved you. Remembering the first part of chapter 2 where Paul said, you can trust the words I preach to you, you can trust the ministry. Um, as people tried to criticize him in Thessalonica, he said, no, you know me, you, you were around me uh, for a short time, and you know you can trust me and the word that I preached. So now as we move to verses 13 through 20, let me give you first the church's journey in the faith. The church's journey in the faith. Now this is a very short journey in the sense that Paul was only there for a few weeks and this is a young church, right? But we can still see a, a progression, even in, the, in Paul's, in verse 13, honestly, but especially in this, in this book, we can see a progression in how this church came to know Christ and then grew in Christ. And it's a progression that not only happened in Thessalonica, it happened in all these other cities that Paul preached and should be happening in our church and our lives as well. So notice this journey from the historical point of view here, but notice this journey in our own lives as well. First, we know the journey right begins with salvation. And again, we see it over in chapter 1, verse 4, that Paul says, No, brethren, your election of God, for and the gospel came to you, verse 5, and you received the gospel there in verse 6 in chapter 1. We see the salvation of God's people, verse 13 of chapter 2. You've received it. You've received the word. So Paul is giving us this, this first part of the journey of the church is that they receive the word. If they would not have received the word, and many of them did not receive the word, they would not be a part of the church, correct? Only those who receive the word and believe in Christ are actually a part of the church. We believe in this. It's called biblical church membership. And so people can come in and sit in these chairs, and sit, they can sit in the front row, right? But if they don't know Christ, right, they're not a part of the church. They haven't, they haven't had that first step of becoming a believer, having Christ give them a new heart, changing them. Notice what these believers did, and I love the emphasis in verse 13. He says, we thank God always. We don't stop thanking God because of what? You received the word which you heard of us. But notice, you received it not as the word of men, but as the word of God. I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. There were so many false religions in Thessalonica, so many false teachers. They worshipped idols and all types of things. And there were, if you do some historical studies, there were some people who were great speakers, great orators. They, they would go through towns like, like Thessalonica, similar to what Paul did, and they would give these eloquent speeches and get people to try to give them money and, and other things and to follow their false gods. And so Paul comes through and says, I'm giving you what is real, the true gospel of Christ. It has power in it. It changes your life and it changes your eternity. I'm giving you the truth. And he says in verse 13, Though you probably heard all these other voices, all these other speakers, all these other words, you did not receive this as word of men, but when I spoke from God's word, you received it as God's word. See that? He says there's a difference there. And we know, by the way, that God enabled them to do this. It wasn't like they were just great hearers or listeners. God enabled them to receive it. But he does say in both chapter 1 and chapter 2 that they did receive the word. A question I wrote here in my notes is how do we... How do we know if something is a word of man or a word of God? How do we know if something's a word from man or a word from God? Here's the first thing I would say. If God didn't say it in the Bible, then God didn't say it. This is God's speaking to us, the Holy Scriptures, these 66 books. Someone this week asked me, 
what about this book? What about the Gospel of Thomas? Or what about um, this other gospel? They mentioned some other things. And I said, I am fully convinced that the 66 books we have here are the books that God has spoken and given to us. I believe that we hold to that. These books are infallible, they are inspired, and they are sufficient. They are all we need to know God and to live this life. Now, we mentioned in Sunday school this morning, there are other great resources, right? Christian believers we can discuss the word with. We have a table in the back back there with good Christian literature that you can read, but we understand that that is the, a word for man based on what they've studied from God's word, right? And it must be held up against the scriptures. How do we know if something's from God? Well, is it in his word? And what we see is so many people take this word and misuse it. Just like what's happening in, in Thessalonica, it happens today, doesn't it? There are cults, cults, who will use the Bible. False religions who will use the Bible. Now they misuse it, right? But they use it. There are even Christian churches who, maybe unintentionally, will misuse some of the word. And so it's our goal, it is our goal to be like these folks who, who receive the word as it is, the word of God, and do our best to study it and interpret it and apply it to our to our lives. Let me show you something else about this. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 5. How did they know it was the word from God? For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. You see, he reminds us that these other people that might have come through preaching about their false religions, it was just words. But when you truly hear the word of God and experience the power of the gospel, it is a life-changing experience. It's a life-changing message. That's the difference, right? If we just came in here every week and gave speeches, that wouldn't do any good. We're attempting to give the word of God, and when we give the word, Isaiah says it will not return void. That where God's word goes forth, according to his plan and his will, it will accomplish the purpose for which he sends it. Which is why we do our best. Look at verse 6. We're still in chapter 1. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. See, I want you to see, notice here that affliction didn't deter them from receiving the word. It actually drove them, I think, even further into joy because of the word. Because it was hard Many people probably did not want to receive the word and maybe went away, but those who receive it even in suffering or even though it might not be easy, those who receive the word that way, you see that that gospel even pushes you closer to joy even in the suffering. Does that make sense? We see it throughout Scripture. Throughout Scripture, there's, these, there's texts that talk about people receiving the word in the face of suffering, but as they go walk through it, God blesses them with even greater joy. That's what we see in, in the salvation of these Thessalonians. The second thing about this, though, is their sanctification. Look at verse, back at chapter 2, verse 13. They receive the word as the word of God, and the last part of verse 13 says, it is effectually working in you. You who believe, it is working. I love the truth of sanctification, that God not only saves us, but God is about the business of making us less and less like the world and more and more like Christ. That is sanctification. He's making us less like the world and more like Christ. So here's my question, church. If you look at verse 13, 
How does God sanctify his people? What's Jason's favorite scripture? Sanctify them in truth. What? Your word is truth. Well, look what he says in verse 13. You receive the word, the truth, and it effectually works in you. Sanctification is God's word in us, God's spirit in us, working through us to cause us to be more like Jesus. So the scriptures talks about the word as a sword. I like to think of it sometimes as a chisel, chiseling away the things in my life that I need to chisel away. The Bible talks about the word as a light that shines bright on our sins and causes us to confess those sins. It also talks about the word as a light, like a lamp to our feet, helping us walk the way we need to walk. All these different metaphors that that's given for the scripture. But we see that it is in us, teaching us, encouraging us, and rebuking us. Paul is so thankful that this church, who's being heavily persecuted, by the way, at any moment, any of these believers could say, this is too hard, I quit. He says, I'm thankful that you received a word that is powerful enough, not just to save you, but a word that's still working in you. And that's what God's doing with us, church. Christian, right? He's still working in us. Through the ups and downs, the peaks, the valleys, the good seasons, the bad seasons, He is working in us. But the way He works is through this holy word. What I always say, we need to get into the word until the word gets into us. Notice the next thing here. As we're being sanctified, in verse 14, notice that they are suffering. It's a part of sanctification. We know that. He says in verse 14, he says, Brothers, you, you've become followers, or literally they're imitators of the church of God in Judea. You are experiencing suffering. And I, I thought about this before I dive into that the text further, but, you know, Christians, we're all going through various degrees of suffering, aren't we? Much various degrees. There are Christians right now in other parts of the world who no matter how bad your week has been, there are some Christians who it's been a million times worse than my week, right? In some parts of the world today. In this room, some people have experienced worse suffering than others, which is just a part of, of life. You can't explain that always, but we just know that's a part of life. But he says to these believers in verse 14, as you've come to believe the gospel, you've become, you begin to suffer just like other believers have suffered. Other believers have suffered. You're not alone. And notice he says you've suffered from the people that are nearest to you, verse 14. You've suffered the, the things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. And he's talking here about these uh, people, these Christians back in Jerusalem or back in Israel who are suffering by their own countrymen, who are afflicting them. And he, he even gives up just a very scathing report in verse 15 when he says they both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets they persecuted us and they they don't please God they're contrary to all men he says these these people are bringing suffering to you but the point I want to make here is to understand when we suffer as a Christian we are not alone when we suffer as a Christian we're not alone as a matter of fact we're in amazing company did the Apostle Paul suffer? 
Two weeks ago, I read the scripture where he lists all his sufferings. And I read that list, and I'm like, ooh, maybe the gas prices aren't as bad as I thought. <laughs> if that's all I'm dealing with, or grocery prices, maybe that's not as bad as, you know, the things that Paul experienced. How about this? Did the disciples of Christ suffer? They suffered greatly. We believe all except John was killed for their faith. Did these early churches suffer? Yeah, we see it here. And how about this? We're not alone if we suffer, right? Because Christ suffered. Scripture reminds us time and time again. Listen to what this apostle says in Philippians 3 about suffering and the relationship between our sanctification and our suffering. He says in Philippians 3, 7 through 11, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rub rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Let's skip to verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now that sounds good, right? I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And look at the next phrase in Philippians 3.10. But that I may share in his sufferings. That doesn't sound appealing, does it? Yeah, I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the life of Christ. But to share in the sufferings, the incomprehensible, indescribable sufferings that Christ experienced that he experienced for us as sinners. Paul says, I want to share in his sufferings. And so the point of this is to see that as we become believers through salvation, as we grow in sanctification in the word, a part of that growth is suffering. But the way we grow in it is faithful suffering. Right? We persevere in the faith even though we suffer. But the positive here, and I threw in this, this fourth word here, is glorification. Now, we're going to see this in other parts of the Scripture, but I want you to know that the Thessalonian church went through a lot of struggles, but Paul goes to great means to make sure they know there's more coming. There's better down the road. So Christ's final destiny, though he suffered, was right the right hand of the Father and a future and the church's final destiny, though we may suffer in ways, is not here in this world. Listen to Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he will glorify. Or he glorified. Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven. Listen to that, church. Our citizenship is in heaven. If you really took that phrase and broke it down, it's such a reminder Yes, we are proud to be where we're from, right? Every day I do the Pledge of Allegiance, every single day. And if people don't do it around me, I'm like, do it again. You didn't do it good enough. We're doing the Pledge of Allegiance in school every day. I'm proud to be where I'm from. You're proud to be where you're from. But our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And Philippians 3.20 says, And when our Savior returns, He will transform our lowly bodies. I always thought that was kind of a funny word, like He's making fun of my body. Our lowly bodies. But listen, to be like his glorious body. And 1 John 3 says, Although it has not been revealed what we shall be, 
when he returns in glory, we shall be like him, for we shall see him like he is. Look at this screen up here. This is the journey that Paul went through. This is the journey the early church went through. This is the journey we go through as individuals and as a church. And God, from beginning to end, leads us through it and guides us through it and is with us through it. Let me give you a, a, a fifth one here. Assurance. And the reason I mention assurance here is because as I read verse 13, the thing that th jumps out to me is that he's, he's so thankful that they receive the word the way they should receive it in a way that says, no matter who tried to make you doubt in me, Paul says, you, you, you understood the word and you held to it. It's like Paul is saying, if the whole world became anti-Christian, would you still be a Christian? If everyone in your family decided all of a sudden on a given day, your whole family said, you know what, I'm no longer going to follow Christ, would you still follow Christ? If the, if the church said, we're just going to shut the doors, no more church, would you still follow Christ? If your greatest hero in the faith renounced Christ, would you follow Christ? There's a song, we wouldn't really sing this song, but there's a phrase that stuck with me from, my, from my, when I was younger. It says, though none go with me, I still will follow Christ. And we're lucky, that we're blessed. That's not our situation because we have family and friends and a church who are not going to ever renounce Christ. But the point is still valid. You can have a faithful assurance because of what God has done. And we can have the same testimony as these people. You receive the word, it's working in you. And though you suffer, God will preserve you. This leads to my second point, and my last two points are much quicker. The second point is the opposition's sure outcome. Again, he mentions the opposition here. These are unbelievers who are persecuting the church. They don't like the church receiving the word. They don't like the church receiving Christ. Again, these are people that helped run Paul out of town when he first came there. And he, he talks about these unbelievers in, in Macedonia where they are and also the unbelievers back in Judea. And so as Paul goes through this empire and preaches the gospel, some believe but most don't. And the ones who don't oftentimes are very antagonistic toward the gospel. Very antagonistic, which is why there was so much persecution, which is why the first century the church experienced so much pain. Unlike any pain that I think we'll ever know here. It's such a report. I mentioned it in verse 14 and 15, speaking about these who, who killed Christ. and The, the opposition is, is real. Again, I feel like, I feel so almost ashamed talking about this because I don't feel like I rarely, I feel, I feel like I rarely see opposition to my faith. I feel like I rarely see somebody come to me and say, I'm an atheist and you should be too, or Jesus isn't real. I just rarely get that conversation. Maybe I need to go around more lost people, but I don't feel like I have that conversation, right? I want to have some of those conversations so I can share the gospel with them, but I really haven't. But these people, the opposition was right in their face daily. In verse 16, he says they're hindering and he says they're hindering 
you from believing and talking about the Gentiles here. Maybe this is related to Galatians. I know you are studying Galatians in one class. Maybe it's related to these Galatians. Uh, some of these Jewish people were saying, if you want to be saved, you've got to be circumcised first, right? Is that what they're saying in Galatians 1? They're adding to the gospel. You know, you can, you can follow Jesus, but first, you must become a Jew. You must be, be circumcised. And those people, of course, are adding to the gospel. And in Galatians, he said, you know, that's, that they should be accursed, right? Something along those lines. So here he says, they are filling up the measure of their sins. And wrath has come upon them at last. That's an interesting phrase there. Does that, is he talking there about the wrath that will happen in, in their lives in a short time? Because there's going to be a, a heavy persecution of the church in this time in history. We've, all, we've already looked in this book how wrath talks about the end of time, where they'll experience the end wrath of God. But the bottom line is these opponents of Christ opposed God, they opposed Paul, and they opposed his early church. And I think Paul says, verse 15 and 16, I think he says it kind of sad that people are, people are acting this way. But the lesson here is the same as, the lesson here is this, God is just. It doesn't matter who the opposition is, God is going to one day give them wrath. One day they will pay for their sins. And that's all of us, by the way. One day you're, you'll pay for your sins unless Christ has already paid for your sins. Right? And you've trusted in Him. And as we sang earlier, our sins are nailed to the cross. So all sin will be paid for. The wrath of God will be poured out on all opposition to God. Which is why we're thankful that we are believers in Christ. Because our sin's been paid for. The point of application here is this persevere even in the face of opposition. I have found, and y'all tell me if y'all agree with this. I'll call Drew out in the back. He, he works with young people. Are young people today, Drew, do they persevere or are they likely to quit pretty quick? Likely to quit is my experience. Likely to give up. Likely to say, I, this is too hard, I'm not going to do it. You can tell, I can tell a student, write two sentences, oh, it's too hard, I quit. It's a, I guess it's part of maybe generation, I don't know. But there are some Christians like that. Almost like afraid to take that next step in their faith because they're afraid that next step, it might be too difficult and they'll fail. But what I've seen as a Christian is, if God's leading us to that step, we need to take it. And secondly, if we fail, we're not ever going to ultimately fail, right? He would not let us fail. We talk a lot about God's election of salvation when choosing who to be saved, but we need to remember this. God preserves all those that are His. And so though we may have opposition, and sometimes that opposition might just be our own self, we persevere. We don't quit. Number three, my final point. Paul's sincere desire. Paul's sincere desire, verses 16 through 20. I'm sorry, verse 17. But we, brethren, being taken from you, not in heart, or he says here, not, we're, we're away from you, we had to leave, we're still with you in spirit, basically, although our bodies aren't there, we're, we're with you, we're thinking of you. 
we endeavored the more abundantly to see your face. Like his great desire was to go back and see the Thessalonians. He, he's, he's like, I want to come back and see you. I want to come back and teach you. I want to come back and encourage you. I want to come back and help you overcome this opposition. I want to help you grow in your faith. Verse 18. And I would have already come again, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. I think I've told you all the story a long time ago, but one of my first ministry opportunity was to teach a, a teenage guy Sunday school class and I'd missed a week I don't know why sick or stay up too late. I don't know I missed a week and my youth pastor came up to me and he said uh why wouldn't you at uh you miss Sunday school you miss Sunday school class and I said I know I said I'm just gonna blame this one on Satan <laughs> and he was like and I'll, and I'll never forget it because he said why would you give him the credit why don't you say, okay, yeah, you're right. It was probably just me sleeping in or whatever. But Paul says here, Satan, in some way, has hindered us. A couple things about that that I just want to bring out is that Paul recognizes that in some way, Satan was a hindrance. He discerned this. He said this here in the Word. Again, I don't really believe in giving Satan too much credit. I believe Satan has been defeated. I believe he still, obviously, we, bite, we fight spiritual battles. But I believe Christ said in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so my point is, Christ is way more powerful than Satan. Though Satan is our adversary, Christ is greater. The second thing I see there is that is that Paul knew this roadblock would be temporary because he says, in a short time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come see you. In a short time, I will be there, or I hope to be there. So he had faith that though he had an enemy hindering him, he had faith that he would one day get there and be with them. And the third thing I noticed is that he, he wrote this letter before he went. Like he, he was going to find a way to communicate and minister to these people one way or another. Question, church, did Paul ever make it back to Thessalonica? To find the answer, you look at Acts chapter 20. And in Acts chapter 20, we see a, not much information, but a description of his traveling back through the region. And it mentions even Thessalonica there. My application for this point. Let me just give you this quote. Supposing that we have hindrances in our way that come from Satan or anyone else, what should we do? I have one piece of advice. Go on. Hindrance or no hindrance, in the path of faith and duty, as God the Holy Spirit enables you. So whatever opposition we feel like we might have, whether we say it's Satan, it's spiritual forces, it's whoever, whatever, our goal is to, as this quote says, go on in faith and duty. Trust in God to lead us. In verse 19 and 20, as I close, he says, Church, you are our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing. And you will be, he says, at the presence of the coming of O Lord Jesus Christ, for you are our glory and our 
joy. Two points of hope. He says to the church, church, I care about you. you he says, Paul says, I brought the word to you, but you still mean a lot to me. You mean, thing, you mean everything to me. You're my hope, my glory, my joy. And that's meant to encourage them, right? Hey, we need that, don't we? We need that. We discussed it this morning. We need that from each other, encouragement and hope. And whenever someone's going is down or struggling, edifying one another. And the second word of hope he gave is the return of Christ. That you will be in his presence when he returns. So you can persevere, church, because the apostle, he says here, cares for you, treasures you, and knows when Christ returns, you will be with him. There's no quote, I don't know who said this, it's not, uh, I don't think it's even a Christian quote, but someone said, we all need something to do, someone to love, and something to hope for. Something to do, someone to love, and something to hope for. And to me, I don't care what the original quote was, all those things are fulfilled in Christ. Church, something to do, serve the Lord. Someone to love, Christ and His church. Something to hope for, that no matter what we experience in this life, if we've received the Word of God, being sanctified through it, even through suffering, the thing we hope for is that we will one day be rid of all this suffering and sin and be with Christ forever. That's our hope. Let's pray.